And actually, incidentally, it was funny, the nuns told my parents not to let me go to art college because art colleges were dens of sin and vice. Well, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going. Print friends, and welcome to the 14th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. This week, on a very special episode of Pine Copper Lime, I chat with our grand dame of printmaking, Miss Jenny Robinson. I can't think of a single person who doesn't want to be a little bit more like Jenny. As you'll hear, she has a straightforward confidence and humor, which is a goddamn delight to be around. I've been close with Jenny for about six years. We've traveled China together, gotten to all kinds of trouble after hours at SGCIs together, and she's basically the reason I got married, but... That's another story. She has an incredible story to tell about her life growing up in Borneo, animating Grace Jones videos in London for a while after art school before traveling around Southeast Asia and India solo, not to mention her recent relocation to Slovenia. Throughout it all, her printmaker pride pervades. Her love of ink and paper runs deep, and it's more than a bit contagious. But Before I get to all of that, I promised you a big announcement this week, so here it is. I have launched a Pine Copper Lime online print gallery. Up on pinecopperlime.com, there's now a selection of prints for sale from incredible printmakers from Southeast Asia and Australia, starting at just $150. And for the next month, as a special thank you to all my wonderful PCL supporters, I'm offering you free shipping anywhere in the world with the offer code SHUN. That's right, as in the non-believers. I'm really stoked about the selection of prints I've been able to offer through the amazing studios of Chiang Mai Art on Paper, Jojo Kobe, and Sakata Press. I think it is well worth a look, and it is a great way to support printmakers around the world, and Pine Copper Lime too, of course. There's also some Pine Copper Lime merch you can get through the website, And not to mention, there's the Patreon as well. Or what is amazingly amazing of you is just tell some printmakers about this podcast or leave a review on your app of choice. So I know that's a lot of asks in a row, but to sum it up, Pine Copper Lime now has an online gallery that you can get free shipping with using the offer code SHUN, S-H-U-N. We have a Patreon with levels and thank yous starting at just a dollar a month. And last but certainly not least, just telling people about the pod is one of the most important things you can do to help grow this community. As always, there will be a link in the show notes to all of that. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers, join the party. And without further ado, here's Jenny. Hi Jenny, how's it going? Hi Miranda, lovely to talk to you. You too, thanks for joining me. It's been a while. It has been. It has been. 
So, We've both moved countries since I saw you last. I know, no kidding. We went from being an hour flight, two hour flight away to um, mm -hmm. other sides of the world. But yeah, yeah. quite literally. Yeah, we, we got to <laughs> we get to meet up here at, at Pine Copper Lime headquarters. Digitally, the best place to meet. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Change is good. Yeah, for sure. So. I know you from working with you at Davidson and showing your work there. And then, you know, you were, you were already represented there when I came on board, but I think that we, we ended up connecting and we've done some gallivanting around together in, in China and yes. at different conferences. And um, Well, that's right. That's where we, we first really met. Do you remember we were, um, I think we were on the same flight coming into Knoxville. I mean, we met in San Francisco and then we were on the same flight coming into Knoxville, weren't we? Yeah. And that's when we actually got to like to, to really talk. And then you were at my wedding last year. So it was I you know, know that was a great wedding. That was so much fun. So yeah, so I feel like I know you pretty well and you know, done international travel and had adventures in Wuhan train China. stations and everything. Oh um, <laughs> but I would love for you to introduce yourself to any listeners who don't know you and just sort of talk about who you are and, and how you identify as, as a printmaker or an artist and how you like to be, to be seen. Okay, well, um, my name's Jenny Robertson, obviously. I'm originally from England, but I grew up in the Far East in Borneo. And I do, I, I identify as a printmaker. I know sort of a lot of times people like to sort of open that up a little bit. But um, I mean, I am a printmaker to my very core. Mm. And, and I think it's important to identify as a printmaker if you are one, because I think printmaking is often seen as a, I hate to say this, but it's often seen as a sort of the, the lesser of the big arts, mm -hmm. like sculpture, even photography, I think, believe com comes above printmaking these days. And and I'm not ashamed of being a printmaker. I am a printmaker and I love being a printmaker. You know, I sort of live and breathe ink. And so for me, it's important to um, say that's what I am. It's like being an alcoholic, isn't it? I'm a printmaker. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Even if you're not currently practicing, you're still yeah. a printmaker, you yeah. know, even if you're in recovery. I still go to my meetings. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I moved to America God, nearly 20 years ago, actually, we were living in America for 18 years. We moved, actually, we moved just a few months before 9-11. Oh, goodness. So that was thrilling. Um, so that was, that was a bit of a shock. But yeah, so we spent, so my whole career, really, my whole serious career, I mean, I had a career in England, but it was sort of up and down because I had kids and, you know, it was all sort of a bit of a mishmash. But everything really started to happen for me once I arrived in San Francisco. So I have very fond feelings for that area. And that's, you know, where, where I knew you. And, um, you know, I sort of knew you as, a, as an artist working in San Francisco at Kala. Kala had a lot to do with um, my development as an artist, I think, because you have artists from all over the world coming there. And you also have a big core of local artists and residents who work there. It's really a, a lovely place to be able to work because not only do you get influences from all over the world from printmakers coming in, but you also have a very solid group of 
people that you see regularly and um, can exchange ideas with. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's a really important part of the Bay Area arts. And, you know, it has such amazing presses there and they do a lot for their artists so yeah I'm, I'm very fond of Kala it's done a lot for me yeah this is sort of the the second episode that we've had some Kala love I don't know if you've heard the one with Keith Sokola who is the oh yes yes I have yeah. he's there at the moment I think isn't he yeah, yeah. so lots of love from Pime Copper Lime to Kala it seems like appropriately well I would I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your experiences growing up in Borneo you know, being an expat and, and being in a, a different culture and how you look back on that now? Well, I mean, it was amazing. I think it's an amazing upbringing for any child to be. I mean, we were pretty, we, we had a pretty wild upbringing. You know, I, I've got um, two sisters and a brother and they were all born in Borneo. And I was actually born on holiday in Portsmouth, England, which has always been a bit of a chip on my shoulder. <laughs> I mean, why me? Why did I have to be born in Portsmouth? But yeah, no, it was it was a wonderful place to grow up as a child. I mean, we would just we would just be running around with hardly any clothes on, playing with the local kids and sort of sitting in drains. And actually to this day, monsoon rain is my favorite sound. Um, because of course the monsoon is I don't know if you've ever been in a monsoon rain but it's mm -hmm. they come down like golf balls and the sound of it on a tin roof you know even now it, if I want to go to sleep or something I'll try and find a tape with mm. golf balls hitting a tin roof like the monsoon rain because it's oh, such it's a lovely. for me it's such a cozy sound and you know the just I think just the colours of, of living on the equator and the rich greens and it, it was just a very free um, childhood. And then that all came to a grinding halt when I was sent to boarding school. I wasn't even eight, actually. I was mm. seven and three quarters. And, you know, it was two days on a plane to get from Borneo to back to England. And that was probably the biggest culture shock I've ever experienced. Yeah. Because growing up with your mum and dad in the tropics and then being sent back to cold, miserable England, it was a shock. <laughs> yeah. Were you even um, sort of like, how aware of it were you by the time oh, that you were sent aware. to live there? Okay, so you, you were familiar yeah. with it. Yeah, we used to, um, my parents used to go back. I think in those days, my father got leave every two or three years. So we would go back on the boats. And I have a very clear memory of going back. The, the, you know, you'd, you'd take a, a liner, a shipping liner back to mm. Britain. It would take about three weeks. Stop in Singapore and Bombay and go through the Suez Canal um, back up to England. And then that would be amazing because they'd have parties on the boats with the children. And, you know, it was full of people going back to the UK. And then we would stay with my grandparents in Devon. So, yeah, I, I do have pretty clear memories of that. But then, you know, there weren't really any good schools because we were in Sindakan, which is a logging town up in the north of Borneo. And so all the expats sent their children back to boarding school. Mm -hmm. So it was quite normal. But we were young. I mean, when I had my own children and I looked at them when they were seven and eight, I thought, oh, my God, I could never send them away to boarding yeah. school. You know, but it was needs must. And I think some people coped well with that and, and I think other people didn't I know some of my siblings didn't cope particularly well with that but I was all right actually I mean I was always a very homebody you know I loved my mum and I loved my dad and I loved being at home but funnily enough I, I kind of thrived at boarding school I was fine 
you know, with that kind of that context and that backdrop of the tropics and the culture and all of that, what were your early art influences? Do you think that has affected your, your practice or was art something that was talked about and upheld in high esteem in your house? Um, any other artists in the family? How did you sort of find your way to it with that childhood? No, I wouldn't say that my parents were interested in art. In fact, my father used to say to me, even when I was about 20, he used to say to me, if you can't draw a horse, you're not an artist. <laughs> and he used to say, can you draw a horse, Jenny? Can you draw a horse? Because if you can't draw a horse, you're not an artist. I'm like, I can draw a bloody horse if I want. I just don't want. <laughs> I mean, you know, heathen. So yeah, yeah I mean, my mum, my mum was always very supportive. But they, and she, you know, later on in life, she took up Chinese painting and stuff like that. So she has artists artistic tendencies my father was an engineer very practical um, but he was also very inventive but he didn't he honestly didn't really have time for faffing around with art Um, and I think he thought that art was something that I would do before I got married and then I'd be a nice little housewife because he Mm. came from that generation Mm -hmm. so no I think it's interesting actually you should ask that because when I went to boarding school I sort of did a lot of drawing once I got to boarding school because it was a way of grounding myself or anchoring myself in a new place. And I think when you sit and draw, you really take notice of what's around you and you sort of invest in what's around you. And I think that was a way of coping with the change. I mean, we did have quite a disruptive childhood after that. You know, we, my parents moved around, my they got divorced and my father went to Africa and my mother remarried and lived in Singapore and we were sort of like shuttled around everywhere and then you know I did find that drawing really helped because it was a way of concentrating on something else and sort of grounding yourself and I think that's sort of where I started to my art has always been about um, location and where I am and what's around me everything I draw is from actual experience of seeing something and I think that's probably where it all began is Mm. just sort of that idea of grounding yourself in in your surroundings so I think that's really where I started developing an interest in art and I won a I won a little art prize when I was about eight and a half at school for drawing a what did I draw I draw drew an acorn or something it was not a horse (laughs) It should have been a horse. I might have been taken more seriously in the family if I'd drawn a horse. No, it was a pine cone, actually. I drew a pine cone and I got this prize. And that really encouraged me because, you know, I wasn't getting much encouragement um, elsewhere. So that was winning that prize. I always look back on that and I always think that was a big deal for me to win that prize because I don't think I won anything else much, but I did win a prize for drawing a pine cone. So there you are. That's where it all started. Yeah, it was one little pine cone. One little pine cone. It's quite a big pine cone, actually. Oh, you've um, always worked big yeah. then, yeah. <laughs> I do like to work big, yes. So, yeah, so I think, and then the nuns, you know, it was a convent I went to, even though we weren't Catholics. My parents left it very late to find a school, and we ended up in a, a convent, which was interesting, because, you know, my parents are um, complete agnostics, atheists. So, yeah, um, we had to go to Latin Mass. I mean, that was this culture shock bit. You know, we got there from Borneo where we were running around with no clothes on in the rain. And then suddenly we've got to wear black mantillas and go to an hour long Latin mass at six o'clock in the morning. 
with incense and nuns, you know, they were wearing the full penguin outfits in those days. I mean, I can't even imagine where you thought you must have been transported to. It was weird. It certainly cured me of religion for the rest of my life. (laughs) I mean, mumbo jumbo or what? (laughs) That's my personal, my own personal opinion, of course. How was it, you know, were you able to connect with the other girls at the school or were they you know were you like the the naked heathen from oh no we were all from we were all from other countries we Mm. were all expat children apart from some who came from London and even some from Devon which we found very bizarre I mean why would you send your child to boarding school when you lived 100 miles away but a lot of us you know there were people from this this I don't know from Fiji and from everywhere Africa lovely yeah yeah so we all had a lot in common I mean you know it was fine you just got on with it really this traveling lifestyle it definitely has has stayed with you and you did some world traveling pretty much on your own is that right when you were in your 20s yes after college I got a job in London in an animation studio actually and then I saved up I was working in um, music videos we did a Grace Jones video really yeah and we worked on the first Highlander this is this is all before digit anything digital it was all hand drawn and hand painted they used to call it paint and trace um, it was really boring but you know a lot of good people in there because they were all from art college just trying to earn some money so I saved up then I went traveling and I, I initially I went with my old boyfriend from college, my ex-boyfriend, and he was not the easiest person to travel with, I will have to say. And so I broke up with him travel wise. I remember in Bombay Railway Station, I think I, I <laughs> said to him, you can get on any train you like, but not the train I'm getting on. And that was it. And I went off traveling on my own after that. And so I traveled for about a year on my own. And it was fantastic. I just had one of the best years of my life. It was just amazing, just traveling around the world with a backpack, you know, and I went to Burma and China and India, spent three months in India, I think, Thailand, you know, all over the place. It was amazing. And how was that time for you artistically? Were you were you drawing everything you were seeing? Were you able to connect with other artists? Well, there weren't many artists traveling, but I took a box of watercolor, Schmincke watercolor paints, and a couple of sketchbooks and I sketched everywhere and I think that was also it was it was it trained me to put everything in a sketchbook so you know I've always kept sketchbooks and and the other thing the thing I love about drawing and sketching when you're traveling is that again it sort of really involves you in the place that you're in so you know I I can look at some of my sketchbooks now from when I was traveling in my 20s and I can remember a hundred percent almost where I was sitting mm. how many children I had around me because you know children come from everywhere when you when you sit down still for a second in India and you can just you know it's the visual diary it really takes you back it's a bit like music you know it takes you back to that moment in time where you can almost remember exactly what what you were doing when you did that sketch um, and I think that's because when you when you draw like that you're you know, you're really concentrating on the images around you. And it's quite an intense hour or half hour or whatever it is you're you're spending there. So, and you don't often sit still in a place like that for half an hour. You know, when you're traveling, you're moving around a lot. And so I think that really trained me in the importance of drawing 
and keeping a, a visual sketchbook of things that you, you know, that catch your eye and that you're interested in. So, yeah, I did. I, I drew all around the world. It was lovely. And it gives you something else to do other than just sort of wander around eating pancakes or curries or whatever it is you're eating that day. And sort of, you know, it gives you it gives you a purpose as well while you're traveling. Yeah. And, you know, the architecture, the architecture in, in India is so beautiful and the light. I did a lot of watercolors of, of the way light affect architecture and buildings and patterns, you know. So I think all that was very much part of training myself in a way. It was an extension of my training in how to look at things and what to leave out in a drawing and what to put in in a drawing. Mm. And I also think watercolour, you know, I did a lot of watercolours after I came back from travelling because I, I couldn't get access to a print shop. And so the way that I use watercolours led into the way that I make monotypes and make my prints because it's pretty much the same system and same approach that I take when I make a print as when I make a watercolour. I think I was probably quite a late developer in terms of my career starting, but I always worked and I always had shows and exhibitions. But it was only when I returned to printmaking a bit later when I got back from my travels that I really began to get seriously back involved in what I really wanted to do. You know, the watercolours and the drawings just led up to that point where I got back into printmaking because I did my degree in printmaking. And then after I left college, I, I really didn't have access to printmaking for a yeah. while. So it's all, I, I just see it all as, as leading up to wherever you end up, you know. And even now, everything that I do leads to something else that I do. I think it's just a lifetime of training yourself and working and I, you just have to work and work. Yeah, that's definitely, that's a good segue into my next question, which is how did you come to printmaking? You know, you said you majored in it and then like a lot of printmakers had that experience of okay I'm gone where's my studio where's my press what do I do now how did you end up coming back to it and and having it really take over your art practice I think printmaking is one of those things that people completely fall in love with when they take their first printmaking class or they just haven't got the patience for it hmm. but um, that happened to me when I went to art college and actually, incidentally, it was funny, the nuns told my parents not to let me go to art college because art colleges were dens of sin and vice. Well, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going. And so I went to art college where I suppose I was supposed to learn to draw a horse. So, you know, when in England, when you do a foundation course, basically you do everything. You do ceramics, you do a bit of sculpture, you do this, that and the other. And when I took my printmaking uh, section which was in the second semester I mean I just completely fell in love with it I was like oh this is what I'm supposed to be doing and so then I applied for a degree and then I did my degree because in those days in England there weren't that many solely printmaking de degrees so I ended up staying in a smallish college outside London and I did my degree there and then when I left like you say it was hard to get access to printmaking so I, I got a job in animation in in Soho in London and that was great I earned quite a lot of money then I went traveling and then I came back and I couldn't stand being in England so I went traveling again <laughs> and then I came back and it was around that point where I really wanted to get back to work and actually after I left college I shared a studio opposite the British Museum with some college friends of mine and one of the lovely things about the British Museum, and this is also something we did when I was at college, 
was they have a printmaking study room where you can contact them and they'll let you come in and see any prints that you want. And they have got a massive selection of prints in the in the V&A and in the British Museum. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I was at college, we used to do that. We would go up there and the tutor would pick out prints for us to look at. And one of the group of prints that we looked at was the Rembrandt Three Crosses, you know, the ones where he he changes the way he wipes it and adds to it mm. and just creates like almost like monoprints. And they have five or six of those in the British Museum. And I remember when I saw those, it was almost a turning point because when you learn traditional printmaking, especially back when I did my degree, you you'll learn to do it traditionally and properly, which I think is really important. But you're supposed to make, you know, 20 prints identical and do an edition, which is, you know, which is the traditional way of making prints. And I really never had patience for that. I always wanted to try new things and, you know, cut up my plates or whatever. And when I saw those Rembrandts, I was like, well, if Rembrandt could do it back in the day, (laughs) you know, if he can just make five prints that are completely different. So that was that was a lovely thing to be able to see as well, that even back in the centuries ago, people were experimenting like that, because I, I honestly think experimentation is the future for printmaking. And of course, that's what it is now. Printmaking is everything and anything. Then I bought my own press. That's right. After, um, after the boys were born. And that's when I started working on dry po- in dry point more because I didn't want any toxic materials around. Mm-hmm. And so I bought a little press, a Rolico press from a guy up in north of England who makes these amazing little presses. And so then, then I started printmaking in my studio again. I bought this little press and I started doing dry points. And that's really when I completely fell in love with printmaking again. And then mm. I've never looked back since then. And then, you know, when I moved to the States, I went to Kalar and they had that huge press at Kalar, which also opened up a whole new chapter of my work because yeah. I was able to work at the scale finally that I really wanted to. So yeah. it's all these little things that happen to you in life where, you know, I bought my little press and I started printmaking again and then we moved to America and I had access to a massive press, a bigger press than I'd ever seen before. And that enabled me to then really take off and do what I really wanted to do, which was to create these large prints. This does seem like a perfect time to move into talking specifically about your work. And, you know, there's definitely, of course, two, well, there's more than two sides to it, but, you know, there's technical aspect of it that you've really got a technique that you've really, you know, developed yourself and of course are invited to to do workshops on at SGCI and that sort of thing. But then also there's the the imagery and the scale and and all of that as well and then the aesthetic side of it. So I'm sure that people would love to hear about both. Do you want to maybe describe a little bit the Jenny Robinson method? So when I bought my little press in England, um, I went down, there's a, a really great shop in London called Intaglio Printmakers. They're like a little Dickensian shop in hmm. South London. And I, I was in there sort of just like looking, drooling over all the printmaking stuff. And they were selling these paper plates for, for dry points. So I bought a couple of them. And so that's when I, that's really when I started um, drawing on dry point plates because, you know, it was very fast I it sort of was like an extension of a sketchbook you didn't have to worry about the cost mm-hmm. and they worked well for two or three prints but they were a little rough around the edges I felt um so I, I did that for a while 
And then when I moved to the States, I was teaching for a little bit. And um, I was pretty shocked at how expensive it was for students um, because they had to buy their own copper and they, you know, they, the cost of just a, a printmaking course or, you know, the cost of university, it was so high because, of course, I had a completely free education and mm-hmm. we were given most of our, our plates by the college. So it, it was a shock to see how, how much more expensive an education in America was mm. um, from what I had had. At that time, I was working at Kalar and I was developing ways of making really big plates but without using metal, um, without investing all that money in copper and stuff. So I, I just did a lot of experimentation of how to sort of how to do these paper plates, but make them a little bit more durable than the ones I'd used in the UK. So so I just tried a bunch of different materials and I eventually landed on um, illustration board and uh, wood varnish, which worked amazingly well in some ways I was trying to save the students money by giving them something that that wasn't intimidating to them in terms of cost Mm. and would allow them to work much larger if they wanted to and much quicker and also to allow myself to to work much larger for a much cheaper approach because you know I'm only getting five or six prints out of each plate and at that time I could get hold of 50 by uh, 60 by 40 pieces of cardboard which worked really well and then later on they changed the makeup and they and were using much cheaper materials so it stopped working Mm. and that was around the time when I started working a bit more on um, aluminium and stuff but it is it's a really um, it's a great thing to teach beginning printmaking on as well as doing more intricate prints because it it's just so accessible and you can make a 60 by 40 plate in two or three days where can you imagine how long that would take you if it was an etching right it'd take you months literally and I I do think that experimentation um, and breaking those traditional ideas of printmaking is kind of the way forward for printmaking and I think we've seen that in the last 10 years Mm. with all the innovations that young printmakers are coming up with installation printing and all sorts of things I mean I think printmaking is such an exciting area of the arts at the moment you know there's so much going on yeah with works on paper so so that's really how I started working like that and then you know I took a course with um, Paul Maloney when I was doing these really big prints and I started working on Gampy um, and I didn't really know what to do with the paper, with the Gampy paper. So Paul, um, we did this workshop with Paul and he showed me how to back Gampy paper right? Yeah, and big size too, and also how to seam prints together. And, you know, that workshop was such a eye opener for me. And it, it, again, it changed the way that I worked. I mean, I hardly work on Western paper at all now, because it just opened up this whole new way of making prints. And that's really when I started getting into um, sort of joining prints together and playing with symmetry and mirror images and tessellation which which also reflects the way that prints are actually made I mean when you pull a print you have that perfect symmetry as as the paper comes off the plate right and I I love that idea that you're you're sort of playing with that whole idea of repetition mirror images and all that stuff so what was it about the 
the gampy that you know you sort of say that it definitely changed things for you i'd love to hear you talk more about that let me see how did i first get into gampy so i think that was another thing about being in a communal print shop is that you you know you you witness everybody working in different ways and I think I was part of a crit group and so we all talk about paper and paper choices and some of us were making artist books on different kinds of Japanese paper and then I just got this yen to make um, one of my really big prints a 60 by 40 print on a really thin paper and I some people at, at Kala had the gampi and I was looking at it so I bought a big roll of it and what really drew me to it when I did my first print on gampi was the counterbalance in a way between this beautiful, fragile, weightless paper, which is so strong, actually. It's sort of, you don't think it's going to be strong, but it's really strong, but it's also really fragile. And that really played into my subject matter, which is about the transience and impermanence of the urban environment. And so I love the idea of having these weighty images on this really delicate paper, Mm. which is also strong. So so the environment is, is fragile, but looks strong and the paper is strong but looks fragile and so I really like that counterbalance between those two the image and the paper so that's really where Gampi started started to be really an important choice um, for my work because it does play into that whole environmental idea that you know we have to look after our environment our urban environments as well and that they are much more fragile than they seem uh, you know using a paper that reflects that I think is very important to the work as well to get that idea across yeah this is a good place to talk about the actual specific imagery that you're using which when I first came to know you and your work it was you know these very large scale prints of older buildings silos you know kind of airplanes really monolithic structures that were in decay and now your work just in the last few years has taken this turn where you're starting to literally deconstruct the images as well and you know doing a, a printing that as you say, kind of mirrors that experience of the actual pulling off the plate, but can go several directions, but still has that really structural, strong quality that it's the, the, the skeletons now of what you were making before. Yeah, um, no, that's a very good summary of, of what it is. Because, you know, the other thing I feel like is um, you, you have to keep pushing your ideas Um, within your own practice so 10 years ago I was doing those very big um, like you say decaying structures because those were the things that I was driving past every day on my way to my studio and those are the the things that really grab my interest you know is is maybe a structure on its own just with that pattern of age and the corrosion that you get from the environment on a structure so I was really interested in all of that and also the way the light falls on it you know things look so different in the evening from in the morning you might Mm. not even notice something in the morning but you'll see it in the evening when the light hits it in a different way and 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 things like the billboards you know I would be driving past all these billboards on my way across the bay bridge and coming back and um and the way the light hits them at certain times of the day and the fact that they're such an iconic part of the American landscape also really interested me but not what was on the front obviously because that's really banal in so many ways Mm. but you know what was holding it up what holds up that idea of the American dream 
And then that led into, you know, the building boom that's been going on all around the world, and especially in San Francisco and London and Sydney, places like that. And, you know, what really was catching my eye then was these skeletal structures that are going up or coming down. And it's that idea that you really don't know what state these things are in because of the constant change um, that, you know, that impermanence. So then I started working in a more linear way, I think. Um, and I was experimenting more with collaging a few bits and pieces and, and then tessellating these images. Um, and so that's really what I'm interested in now is, and, and also sort of doing these repeat images um, because that's another thing with Gampy is that you can read it from the back as well as the right, front. Yeah. And then when I realized that, you know, put a little bit of the plate all in there or whatever. And then you've got this complete mirror image that you can join together. You can take images that are, are rooted in observation and drawing again, and then you can change them and create something that's based on that reality, but takes on a more ambiguous shape, if you like. Um, it's recognisable, but it, it's not quite what you think it is. And I, mm -hmm. I'm just really enjoying that idea of being a little bit more abstract with my work and sort of just taking it where it goes and sort of playing on those ideas of symmetry, tessellation, repetition, all the things that are involved in the printmaking process itself. And, and where do you think that kind of impulse came from to start to, to really deconstruct the images and really move to, in some cases, almost complete abstraction? Again, I think it was from observation, you know, and I started to simplify my drawings a bit more. And I think actually a lot of it stems back to, I went down, uh, down the peninsula in San Francisco, there's this huge um, airship building, Hangar One, down at Moffitt. Airfield and and Google recently, well not recently now, but about ten years ago, had um, leased it and they had taken off the skin, so it was just sitting in this field off the freeway, like this massive dinosaur or you know like a skeleton, and that I went down there and did some drawing and took some photographs and then I did a whole body of work that just came off off that. So my first print of that was a literal dry point. Um, which was about 24 by 27 or something. And I kind of just thought of that as a study. So I did a, a dry point of that. And then I realized that if I, I sort of printed it on Gampy and I moved it around and sort of put pieces together, I could create this different um, architectural monolith, if you like, that was based from that, but that had its own entity, that it ha had its own character. Mm. And that sort of then led to... Um, a whole bunch of work that was more in keeping with that was just taking parts or details of a building and and then creating my own um, constructs, if you like, you know, using symmetry and recognition. And I like that idea that people look at it and they, they recognize it, but they don't know where from. Mm -hmm. um, but they also appreciate that it's its own architectural shape now. And so that I think that's just, you know, I think it, and I think it comes from this idea of not wanting to stand still and do what you're comfortable with. You know, I reached a point with the, the other prints where I just felt really comfortable with them and I knew I could do them. And I, I wanted to try something else. You know, I wanted to push myself a bit more and try something different. And I think that's always scary when you're an artist, because if you're selling your work, it's a bit of a leap of faith to then sort of 
change it a little bit because, you know, we all, I, I rely on selling my work to make my living. So to change it is, is a, it's a bit scary. But yeah. then, but then you think, well, you know, you don't want to be doing the same thing day after day. You want to try new things and, and see if they work for you. And after all, I, you know, I do my work for myself. I don't do it for other people. I've been lucky in the fact that people like my work and will buy it. But at the end of the day, it's really what I want to do with my work that um, keeps me going. Otherwise, you know, why bother, honestly, if you're just doing it to sell it? Yeah, I can see that. It's sort of like if you're not interested in your work and you're just producing it because it's what sells, it's like you, you may as well be doing anything. You know, you may as well paint a bunch of flowers or something, which, of course, is what people expect from women artists anyway, generally. Yeah. Ha, ha. Uh, flowers and horses. Um, yeah. Flowers and horses, <laughs> yes. Unicorns. Yes. <laughs> I mean, honestly, Miranda, I can't tell you how many men usually have come into my studio and asked me where the artist is, even though I'm the only person in the room and my name is above the door. Right. And they'll come in and they'll say, oh, where's, where's the artist? And you go, oh, well, actually, I'm the artist. And they go, no, 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 this work looks like it's been done by a man. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I know. And then, you know, there are times when Stuart might be in the room with me, my husband, and, and they'll talk to him and they'll say, oh, is this your work? And he'll say, no, it's my wife's. And they're, and they're, but then they'll, they'll talk to him. Yeah. They'll say, oh, yeah. How, many, how many pounds per inch does this press? Uh, you know, <laughs> blah, blah. And you're like, oh, my God. I mean, I think that's the thing. Until more recently, anyway, I don't think the art world expects women to do work that's more structural or, you know, architectural. Yeah. You know, we I think we're still fighting against that image of what women are interested in or what women should be doing. Yeah, I remember you telling me that about the open studios that you would have in San Francisco. And it just seems completely inconceivable that it is inconceivable to them that a woman can be making large strong structural work um yeah it's just I know yeah I mean it's getting less I, I'm glad to say it sort of becomes less and people are a little bit more aware I think that yeah it's a stupid thing to say but, <laughs> yeah now they can just um, think it but yeah like as we sort of touched on before you're actually not in San Francisco anymore you were in Slovenia at the moment and correct? Yes, that's right. We moved over here for two years um, in November. Can't believe we've been here four and a half months already. But yeah, we, we uh, chose Slovenia. Berlin would have been amazing, but we couldn't swing it. Mm. We could have moved to Paris, but we wanted to be in this part of the world. And I have to say, it is a lovely part of the world to be in. Mm. It's, it's a wonderful part of Europe. We're very lucky because we're close to a lot of beautiful European cities. I mean, for instance, I went to Venice for the day the other day mm. um, and we've been to Milan and this weekend we're going back to Vienna where we were a few weeks ago. And so it's, it's very, um, it's a lovely place to spend two years. Well, definitely. And, and while you're there, you must have access to like the museums, of course, of Europe and going there yes. and getting to see that. And that must be super enriching for any artistic practice. It, it is. And it, it's it's nice to have the choice of um, museums that you want. In fact, it's funny that you should mention that because I read on Hyperlergic that there was a Egon Schiel um, centenary exhibition on at the Leopold Museum in Vienna. So we went to see that and it was called Egon Schiel Reloaded. And it's it was like the centennial of his birth or death or something. Mm. 
And so we went in, we paid our 10 euros and we got the, the, you know, got the information. So basically it was putting modern art with Egon Shields work and oh, they did it. Interesting re- idea. Cause it's, yeah. And it was, it was a really interesting exhibition until we got into a room where they started to show his watercolors, which I was very excited about seeing and his prints, of course. Yeah. Um, and so I was looking at this this first drawing, watercolor drawing. And you know the beautiful thing about watercolor drawings is the texture of the paper mm, yeah, and the yeah. mark, the charcoal. You can see it. You know, you can yeah. see, really. See. You can see the and way I, the water has like really seeped in in different layers in the paper. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, whoa, what's this? And it was just really flat and on sort of very flat paper and it and it said facsimile on the edge of it and I, oh. I'm like what and I thought oh, well maybe they couldn't because the Leopold actually has this huge collection of his drawings I mean they have one of the biggest collections I think of his work and this is a big exhibition I think it's traveled all over the place and then I looked at the next drawing and it was the same and I realized that every single drawing and work Every single piece of the works on paper in that show was basically a photocopy. And it wasn't even a very good photocopy. I mean, it was basically they'd taken a photo of it and it was all framed up beautifully and stuff. But the quality was just awful. You know, it's on this sort of slightly off white paper. And it was really, really disappointing. And it really got my blood boiling, actually, because I thought, this is a a ripoff. I could have gone into the bookshop (laughs) and looked, and I probably would have seen better reproductions. Yeah. Um, And even the etchings were were for similes as well. That would be so, that would be heartbreaking. Like if I had the opportunity where I thought I was going to go see his etchings and they turned Mm -hmm. out to be reproductions, I would be devastated. I know. And what's the point? I mean, the thing with etchings, too, is you get the embossment on the paper and you get the ink sitting on the paper. I mean, and they were not. So actually, I was I started, you know, bitching away to my husband about (laughs) it. And I said, I'm going to say something about this because, you know, this cost us 10 euros to get in. Anyway, so when we left, I went up to the desk and I said, you know, could you tell me why all the works on paper are reproductions? And she said, and actually, the woman got very defensive right off the bat. And she she said, well, they're very good reproductions. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, well, not really. You know, <laughs> um, uh, she said, no, they're very, very, very good reproductions. And most people can't tell the difference. And I said, yeah, but they're they're reproductions and they're all framed up and stuff. And, you know, and she just got she was just saying, oh, well, you know, we you know, she said, you do realize that works on paper are very fragile. And I said, yes. <laughs> And she said, well, we can't just take them out for any exhibition, but this is like this big exhibition. And I said, but, you know, you can put museum glass on them and you can lower the lighting and stuff. And she said, well, no, we, you know, we're just not going to take the works out and just show them because, you know, they'll get damaged and stuff. And I thought, well, bloody hell, you know, that that's just not on. You it's just very uncool to to have a a museum of that standing um, showing works that are poor reproductions when they have the actual original works on paper in their archives I just don't get it well and what's the point and what I find so disturbing about it you know just despite the personal disappointment that people who know what they're looking at must be experiencing is for the people who don't know what they're looking at how are they ever going to fall in love with works on paper if they are being spoon-fed reproductions and being told that it's the same experience because of course it's 
Very much not. It's like a McDonald's versus a Michelin star restaurant. Yes, yes. You know, meal. I mean, it's it's just, I don't know. I just don't understand it. And I think it plays into that whole dumbing down of works on paper. They're not as important. You know, you don't have to see the real thing. Who needs to see a work on paper when you've got a painting next to it? You know? Yeah. Oh, it gets me blood boiling, Miranda. It gets me blood boiling. Because, like, cause it, yeah, they're, they're just treated in this way. That's like, well, of course. Like, almost like, well, people aren't really going to look closely enough at them anyway. The, you know, that, yeah, because that, that just works on paper, you know. People aren't going to know the difference, this this sort of thing. Well, um, and, and that's yeah. true in a way because, you know, I was say, I've pointed out to my husband, he's not an artist, he's an engineer. And I pointed out to him and he said, oh, you know, I wouldn't really have noticed that unless mm. you pointed out. But now that you pointed out, I can see that that's not good. Yeah. doesn't look good, you know. And people so, can, yeah. like even if uh, they don't have that eye of having been around paper so much, once you pointed out, anyone can see it and anyone can see that that it, it is a photocopy that's not fulfilling that, that aesthetic, lovely, burning heart of, of love, I guess, that you, that you can exactly. get for paper. Honestly, I was in the V&A a few weeks ago when I was in London. We were in this dark corridor and they had these original Beatrix Potter drawings of oh. Peter Rabbit. And they were the originals. And honestly, Miranda, you could look at them and they were just so beautiful. The paper yeah. and the delicate watercolours. I mean, the difference was chalk and cheese yeah. um, between. And, you know, they were just up in a dark corridor in the V&A. They weren't being overly precious about it. Obviously, they, you know, they had the lights down and, you know. Um, but that's the difference between a, a big museum showing really not very good reproductions on flat pieces of paper and, you know, the real thing. Yeah. So so that is something that really sort of gets me a bit irate when I see things like that. You know, I think my poor husband had to put up with me wittering on about it all through dinner. And the more I drank, the more I got irate. Of course, of course. <laughs> When I was traveling in sort of northern Europe years ago, I took a special trip to Vienna to see Dürer's hair watercolor because I knew that the Albertina had it. And I was so excited to go see it. And I we got to the museum later than we were hoping to, and it seemed like it was going to close. And so I I asked the guard, you know, where can I see the the Durs watercolors and ran upstairs to the third floor and and found them and uh, they were reproductions. Oh, <gasps> they were again, again, and I was so heartbroken because <laughs> I I we hadn't even planned on coming to Vienna at all, but I asked my the my friend who I was traveling with, you know, can we go and do this? I've just always wanted to see these. We're so close. Let's just do it because we we were just in Germany at the time. And it was, you know, in looking back, it's like, okay, yeah, I can see why they may not have a watercolor on display because it was where where it had been stationed was getting direct sunlight from an open window. But it's just a stupid place to put anything anyway. Just don't put it there. Like, put it somewhere, you know, like you say, it's like a little dark accord or put it under the museum glass and let people have that experience that they've traveled for, that they've paid for that they've been looking for that sort of release and satisfaction and love that you feel when you do see a truly beautiful work on paper in person. There's nothing else like it. I know. And it it just seems counterproductive to 
you know, send people to the bookshop. Right. If you're going to do that, because the reproductions in a good book are probably better anyway. But yeah, it, it just seems very weird that that's the way they treat works on paper in these massive museums. Mm. I mean, especially when they have the originals in their vaults, you know. Right. Have, have they not heard of special lighting in museums and yeah. <laughs> museum glass? Have they not so, heard of these things? Sort of like, you know, know this is your job, right? Museums, yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. You can show these things, by yeah. the way. Yeah. You Don't put allowed. them in sunlight and get a grip. Oh, how disappointing. Mm. I know. So, you know, it, it does it does make you wonder really what's going on when they do that. But yeah. It's why we yeah. need um why we need podcasts about printmaking so people can know the truth. Yes, yes, and that is why and by the way, Miranda, at this point I do want to say thank you to you for setting this up because I think it's so important to have a podcast about printmakers for printmakers mm. and you know hopefully some of the general public will jump on board too and learn a thing or two and and learn how important works on paper are oh well, thank you yeah i i do have a bit of a dream that i might convince just some podcast browsing people to jump on board as well and and hear all the interesting things that we're doing and get a sense of the great community that we have and maybe inspire I, them to to and, take up something and maybe some painters might learn a thing or two <laughs> were they were they to listen yeah yeah i mean no you know no pressure painters no pressure no but, pressure you know. painters i was about to say i was like i mean i'm not holding my breath for painters but yeah <laughs> i know i know there's a whole world of works on paper out there painters yeah 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 we're thriving so so speaking of thriving what's what's on the horizon for you you've got your new continent You've got a press that you're you're going to be working with now, and what are you looking forward to? Well, um, I think you know we're going to be here for two years, and then my long term plan, uh, as you know, I may have told you this before, Miranda, but I do want to drop dead at my press when the time comes—not <laughs> too soon, but obviously in my dotage, that's the way I want to go. And so we're thinking of setting up an artist residency. Mm. You know, obviously we don't have the details yet. We haven't even decided on the country where we will do it. <laughs> but it is, we went to a beer garden the other day and had a long talk about it. And we've definitely decided to do it. So it's just a case of where. Beautiful. It'll be soon, I think. It'll probably be within three years we'll start to look to, to set it up. And I think the, the main draw that I'm interested in for this particular residency is I think we want to buy a really big press and that will be the focus of the residency yeah. I think, to enable people because not every place has got a, a big press and so I think that will be our our main focus is to have access to a really large press so that people can work on a large scale. Yeah so it's very exciting so we just have to decide where so I think that's what, what we're going to do. Well, I think that that is a lovely place to finish up. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they see your work and follow you and all your adventures? I'm on Instagram under Jenny Robinson Prints, and I have a website, JennyRobinson.com. And that's pretty much where you'll find most of my information. Great. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And um, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to chat and catch up a bit, but then also learn things about you I didn't even know after years of friendship. Thanks very much for inviting me, and I've really, really enjoyed it. Oh, it's been good. Lovely. I can't wait to talk more. So 
All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Miranda. Bye. Bye. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Aaron Coleman. We talk about his early art influences of hip-hop culture growing up outside of Chicago and how the sampling of music and imagery present affects his current practice, as well as art-making as a political act and the often underseen labor done by black and brown people in academia. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.